You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness, and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness and physiology right now. In this episode, Dr. Nader sits down with Dr. Aparna Ramaswamy, a representative from the Embassy of India, Washington, D.C., and faculty from Johns Hopkins University to share his thoughts on consciousness and meditation during the summer meditation series titled, Learn from the Masters. Namaste, Dr. Nader. It is such a delight to have you here with us. I'm privileged. I'm humbled. I feel a little bit like a kid in a candy store. I don't know where to ask, what to ask. So let me step in with a question that probably many of our viewers would have. We come from a tradition where there's so many doctrines, so many shastras, so many written information. So what is the tradition of transcendental meditation founded on? Beautiful. Namaskar, namaste, and all greetings, and Jay Gurudev to all the great masters and the leaders of the holy tradition of Vedic knowledge that has come to us through the ancient time from teacher to student. And in our recent time, His Holiness Marshi Mahesh Yogi has gotten it from Brahmananda Saraswati, Jagat Guru of Jyotirmat, who is very well known in the Himalayas, a great shining star of the Vedic knowledge. So transcendental meditation is, in Sanskrit, we call it bhavati dhyan. So dhyan is meditation, and to transcend is to go beyond. And it's the supreme knowledge of experiencing wholeness, experiencing samadhi. It comes from the Vedic tradition, so from Veda, as a science. And Marshi wanted it to be seen as a science because he sees it as a science of life. Science doesn't mean it's against belief or against religion. Science is just discovering what works and what does not work, and how does it work if we want the theoretical part of science so that we understand why things work the way they do. And so Veda, actually, as the origin of transcendental meditation, means knowledge. The term Veda in Sanskrit means knowledge. And it is knowledge of all aspects of life. Marshi calls it knowledge of the laws of nature or knowledge of the constitution of the universe, which means how is our universe managed, created? How does it develop? What is the purpose of creation and manifestation and all of that? Now, when you come into these questions, you start saying, well, this goes into the realm of belief, into the realm of spirituality, because if you ask what is the purpose, why things are there, you talk about creation and all of this, it's something that is not usually within the scope of what we call science. Science wants to know there is a cause and effect, there is something that you do, you produce a result, you repeat it, it produces the same result. You repeat it under different conditions. Based on the conditions, you might get different results, but you know that there is a trend. There is a reliability in it. 
And there is a system. It's not that you do something sometimes and you do something else some other times, then it's not science anymore because you have to have the same thing produce the same effect. So that's why we call it scientific because it's systematic. There is a system to it. There is a procedure to it. And so Veda as knowledge has a theoretical aspect, of course, and has practical aspects. These practical aspects are technologies. They are technologies of consciousness, technologies of the mind. In the same way as we have technologies of physical nature, you know, mechanics, you put the engine this way, you make it work that way, you get the result. The car drives in the street. You create an airplane, it has a certain shape, it has a certain aerodynamics, it has certain speeds, and it is able to fly, which means to go in ways that are unimaginable 200 years ago because you're flying and as if you are confronting and acting against the law of gravity. But by using certain laws of nature, you can balance certain other laws and create the effect which is desired. Now, all science in modern times has avoided the field of consciousness. If you look 200 years ago, even medicine was an art because we didn't know that there was cause and effect, that there was relationship between laws that create the effect of something. So you do something, there is a law of nature, the law leads you to somewhere. So there is action and reaction. In a broader sense, it's kind of the field of karma from the Vedic tradition, where action and reaction are also computed, but on another level, not only on the level of the physical, but on the level also of the mental, on the level of the feeling, on the level of the intellect, on the level of society, on the level of psychology. So as science started to see that biology is also having cause and effect, medicine became a science. As the study of the mind started to show that there is cause and effect and systematic changes that can happen based on different exposures, different ways the mind works, then you get into the science of the psyche, which we call psychology. Psychology, until very recently, was only an art. You know, when you study psychology at the university, you go to art school. You don't go to science school a few years ago, you know, 50 years ago. But then now it's becoming a science. It's cognitive science. We know the working of the mind. We know that there are cause and effect and relationships between the mind and effects of the mind on the body and the behavior and the effects of all of that on society. Consciousness had remained kind of elusive and still a bit elusive in science because it's so abstract that science is not able to truly define except in terms of different states of consciousness. You know, you are in coma, you are in vegetative state, you are in waking state, you are in dreaming state, you are in sleep state. And now we know that each one of these states has a different physiological activity as well as a different activity on the level of the mind, a different way of experiencing things, which means consciousness moves from waking state to dream state, 
moves from dream state to sleep state, or in fact, the other way around. It doesn't matter. The cycle is from sleep to dream, then to waking and like that. And in certain cases, you have coma, you have vegetative state and different altered states of consciousness. So consciousness is not something that is one aspect that is the same for every condition. Consciousness changes based also on mood, on being very alert or less alert during waking state. You can have a very sharp consciousness, which is able to see things from a wide perspective when you are well rested and well established within yourself then you feel bright, you can think better, you can make decisions better, you can manage your life better. When you are tired and dull, you don't see things, you don't understand things, you don't feel things, you don't connect with people. In the same way, you are muddled as if your consciousness is clouded. And so scientists are trying to understand what is consciousness. Veda is actually ultimately the study of consciousness, the field of consciousness, and how the dynamics within consciousness lead to different aspects of manifestation. This is a very different perspective from the quote-unquote, if you like, materialistic perspective of what reality is. In the materialistic perspective, we say that there is matter, physical matter or energy, physical energy. And this matter and energy, we know they are equivalent, but they connect together and they interact together and then they create consciousness. How they create consciousness? In modern science, we assume that it's through the nervous system. So there is a complex rearrangement of the nervous system of molecules, ultimately leading to tissues, tissues leading to organs, organs and structures working together to create a certain machine, which we call the nervous system. And that nervous system is able to have consciousness. So consciousness is a byproduct of the activity of the physical nervous system. In contrast, in the Vedic tradition and in what we will discuss about transcendental meditation, because that will make a big difference in what the scope of transcendental meditation is and how transcendental meditation works and why does it work in these different areas and produce these different effects, it comes from that knowledge, that Veda, which says that consciousness is actually primary. So there is a field of consciousness, a field of being, a field of existence that is pure awareness, pure consciousness, infinite, unbounded, one field of pure consciousness. And that field of pure consciousness manifests as the physical, the material, and then ultimately the nervous system, society, and everything. So that is looking like, oh, this is not scientific because science says that everything comes from matter. (laughs) And now you're telling me that everything comes from consciousness. Everything comes from a field of consciousness. Well, let's, before we make a decision about that, look into what science tells us about the physical matter, the physical aspects of reality. What is physical? Scientists said, well, if you take any object 
and you cut it into pieces, you end up with the smallest possible piece that you cannot divide anymore. And they called it an atom, the Democritus and you know, the Greeks. Atom means a with none, it comes from Sanskrit. Tom is to divide, you know, in that sense, atom. It means the indivisible. That is a piece that becomes indivisible at the end of the journey. Now, scientists manage actually to go into the atom and they find that it's made out of elementary particles, more elementary particles than what we call the atom, you know, the electron and then the nucleus having elementary particles within it, bosons and fermions and whatever quarks that make this and that. And so they kept going deeper into what is matter. And they found that matter is actually energy. And energy is fields of energy and fields of forces. And as they kept going deeper and deeper into those considerations of what the physical is, what the material is, they found that there are fields. And these fields are not ultimately separate one from the other and they managed to unify them. For example, there used to be electric field and magnetic field. Now we know electricity and magnetism are just one field. They call it the electromagnetic field. And they gave a Nobel Prize for the scientists, the physicists who discovered the unification of these fields. And then we have the grand unification, which unifies the field of electromagnetism with the weak force, and then the strong force. And now they're looking into the unification of the field also of gravity, which are the major forces of nature. And therefore, science ultimately probing deep into the physical found something that is ultimately one unified field of pure, not even, you cannot say even that it's energy, of pure being, of pure <laughs> mathematical, logical aspect of reality that is the unified field. And that is how we see that even from a theoretical perspective, we join what the Vedic scientists, and we can call them scientists, have discovered through their consciousness, through their awareness. You know, in the West, research is done on an objective level, which means keep the observer, keep the subject away from the object, let them not interfere, otherwise you have complicated relationships and let's be on the object alone. Well, the Vedic scientists were saying, leave the object, go into the self, go within and do your research within because all is coming from within. Why is this difference? Actually, it's because it's the difference between the starting point. In the Vedic science, the starting point is consciousness, is within. In the modern science, the starting point is the matter, and the matter becoming maybe mental and then maybe consciousness. But then science, when it made research deeply into its reality, it found that all of this comes from the unified field. All of the universe comes from one field of pure being, of pure existence, and that is the subjectivity and the objectivity finding its other and shaking hands. Very so, nicely said. <laughs> so the ultimate subjectivity, which is the ultimate going into the self, yourself, is the ultimate objectivity 
because the ultimate going into the object, what we find is the same unified field. So this is shaking hand between East and West, if you like, <laughs> between Veda and modern science on a theoretical level, on a theoretical level. But that's not enough theoretical level. One can say, well, that is then a belief. Then that is a way of living. That is a spiritual aspect. Of course, it is spiritual because ultimate spirituality is pure being, is the self, is that which is not physical, that which is not based on the physical outer reality, and that's ultimately spirituality. But spirituality is also a science. This spirituality is also a science if it produces a systematic result to a systematic approach. So you do something, you get a result that is sought after or that is promised. You repeat this many, many times and you do find the same results. Then you are confident it's science. The science should not presuppose something because if you presuppose something, you cannot do proper science. And we have seen this throughout the ages. At one point, it was presupposed that the earth is sitting somewhere immovable and all the skies and the planets and the stars are moving around it. And that was a belief. Then all those who tried to do science with this belief, they could not understand the movement of the planets, the movement of the stars. It was impossible because their trajectories were going back and forth in all different kinds of direction. So how could it be they are turning and then they change gear and move back and like that? How could that be possible? And they couldn't make a meaning out of it until somebody says, maybe our initial assumptions are wrong. The initial assumptions are that the earth is sitting there and everything's turning around it. Now, what about the earth actually is rotating around its axis? What about the earth rotating around the sun? So when they accepted to bypass the prejudice, if you like, then they found that the solutions are available. So in science, we cannot have prejudice. And therefore, what works, works. What doesn't work, doesn't work. So we subject it to science. And that's why Maharishi wanted to subject the technologies of the Veda to science so that we know it works. So we're not living in an illusionary kind of situation based only on some belief, but make actually even spirituality, make the development of consciousness, the development of life on the level of mind, on the level of intellect, on the level of the body, on the level of society and relationship in society, something scientific. And that is where transcendental meditation is a science of consciousness that takes us back to the self. That is the initial original starting point. Go back to the unified field within us, to pure consciousness, and all else is added on. All the other aspects are side benefits. And what is beautiful in all of this is that all belief systems, not only science discovering the unified field, but even all great belief systems have said the same thing. In the Veda, it says, Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman, I am totality. Vedoham, I am the Veda. 
Sarvam Kalvidam Brahm, everything is wholeness, everything is totality. In the Bible and the Christian, Jewish tradition, Quran and all of that, the same things are said. Man or humans are created in the image of God. What does it mean? We have all that within us. Know thyself at the time of the Greeks. Go back to thyself. That is the greatest wisdom. And like that, you know, Imam Ali of the Muslim tradition says, consider yourself to be an atom in which the whole universe folded itself. So you contain everything. And that is another topic of great interest, maybe we'll cover in the next session, which is how is it possible that a human being has that potential and how can we develop the full potential of a human being so that we can live fullness of life? If that is at all possible, then why can't we explore it? So we have to know that we are totality, we are wholeness, and how we can address this question scientifically and what we can do about it and why we can actually have technology that will make us live happy, healthy, strong, powerful, peaceful as an individual and as a society and as our world. And I think you've done a beautiful job. Thank you so much, Dr. Nader. You've talked about the concept of Vedas is giving us, of course, the concept of Brahman and the samsara, moksha, the karma chart cycle, if you will, and connecting it to the individual basis. I have a couple of uh, thoughts over there, if I could beg your indulgence. When we say Vedic science and Vedas, I know you, re you refer to the Chandogya Upanishad, you refer to the few Upanishads too. Is there a particular Veda alone that we're talking about? Is it a particular aspect of the Vedas? Is the Samhitas, the mantras we're talking about? What does Vedic science encompass? This is really beautiful. And I think it's something very significant to address, particularly for those who know the Veda or believe in the Veda or feel the Veda is important. And in this case, particularly, of course, all our great Indian leaders and Indian population that has grown up with the knowledge and experience of the Veda and have seen that there are so many different aspects of the Veda. It's so beautiful what you are asking, because this is a question that Marshi has directly addressed. And all of the Veda is natural law. And Marshi organized the Veda into 40 aspects that constitutes the entire Vedic literature, Veda as Samhita, and Vedic literature as the other aspects of the Veda. And some of these aspects can seem to have contradictory values. So what has happened with time is that people would maybe even say, I belong to the Smriti, I belong to the Vaisheshik, I belong to the this Samhita, I belong to that, I am this Shaka. And it's become almost like a different belief and the different clashes, you know, of understanding and interpretation. And Marshi takes a beautiful example and he says, you know, for the flower to grow, for the tree to blossom, you need enough sunlight, you need enough proper wind, you need enough wetness in the ground, you need enough nourishment in the field. And these, when you look at them, they can seem contradictory because the sun burns, the wind dries, the water wets. If there is too much water, the plant might rot. 
it might not be able to grow. If there is too less water but too much wind, it might break, it might dry. If there is too much sun, it might burn and therefore will not flourish. So all these apparently contradictory values, if they are balanced together, they can create a healthy, happy, <laughs> nourishing and fulfilling and beautiful plant or tree or life. So in the Veda, there are these different aspects and they each play their own role in creating an overall balance. What we want to do, what is necessary to do, is to be on the transcendental level, which nourishes the entire field of life from within. It is like watering the root of a tree so that the tree flourishes and we can then enjoy the fruits. We can enjoy the results of the nourishment from the deep level that supports all the different aspects that can be contradictory because the leaf is a little bit maybe rough, but not as rough as the trunk. The flower is soft. The, uh, you know, it's colorful. The branches are hard. The trunk has to be solid. There are different aspects of the tree, but together they make it solid, strong, and bearing fruit and all of that. So all of these aspects that are on the outer value, and if a fruit gets a bit wrong or not working well, then you can go and try to clean it or <laughs> clean it on the surface, but that's not the real solution. Real solution is to water the root. You water the root and then the whole tree nourishes. That's why we have transcendental. Transcend, which means go to the level of the self, go beyond those surface values, but go to that place which nourishes all these surface values. And we will come back to that. So basically, what are the Veda? Which part of the Veda is the laws of nature? This is a very important question. If time allows, we can handle it in this session. Otherwise, you can maybe make it for the next, next session. Right, and I think I was just going to say that that might be something we want to hold off and dedicate an entire session to talk about the Vedas part of it. Beautiful. Let's do that, but let's maybe quickly say what it is so that the listeners get interested to come back <laughs> for the next session. And what it is, is the Veda is all these different aspects. And the 40 aspects of the Veda start with the basic Samhitas. So you have Rig Ved, Sama Ved, Yajur Ved, Atharva Ved. These are the basic four Veda. And then you have the Vedangas, the Upangas, the Brahmanas, the systems, all of them, Ayurved, you know, and all of that. And so, you have all these 40 aspects with four that are the main ones and then 36 that include Shiksha, Kalpa, Vyakara, Nirukchan, Jyotish, Nyaya, Vaisheshika, Samkhya, Yoga, Karma, Mimansa, Vedanta. You have Stapatya Ved, Gandharva Ved, Ayurved. You have what we call generally the Brahmanas, Upanishad, Aranyak, Brahmana, Itihas, Puran, Smriti, and the Pratishakyas. And so all of these together are the Veda, each having a different aspect of natural law to it. And these aspects, as we will see in the next time when we will discuss this, have their function and have their structure. So you can have an expressing value as in Shiksha, transforming value as in Kalpa, expanding value as in Vyakaran, Nirukt, 
self-referral value like that. So you have unifying value in yoga, diversifying values. You have Nyaya, for example, is deciding, witnessing and deciding, you know, like that value of natural law. So you have these different values that are in each aspect. And each of these values are like different organs of our body. They are different. They play different things. They look as if they have different laws of nature, but together they create a wholeness, which is our own human reality. And actually this is what Marcy asked me myself to do research on that and compare how actually the Veda are available within us. So that when we say Vedoham, I am the Veda, it's not just some nice philosophical, spiritual inspiration, but actually a physical reality that makes it that we are really created in the image of natural law, which is the Veda. And you've left us a longing for the next segment. I have so many questions about the concept of mantra and the Vimamsas, and you've talked about the various darshanas. I will have to hold it for the next episode. So just to kind of create a discreet break, thank you so much, Dr. Nader, for this particular episode, and we look forward to the next segment. Wonderful. Looking forward. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.